Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. Today, we're going to be talking about chapter 3 in the Alcoholics Anonymous big book that's titled More About Alcoholism. Now, in the book that I have, this is going to be pages 30 through 43. And if you've been listening to previous episodes, you kind of know the format. For folks that are new, I do a little bit of a reading out of the Daily Stoic, which is my choice for kind of a daily meditation that I read in the morning, so I figured I'd share that with you guys and gals and whoever else. I sort of riff on that, and then after that, I read out of the big book. As I go, I kind of make my own assumptions or opinions or decisions about some of the stuff that's in there based on my being an atheist and the book being heavily religious. Now, I know AA as a whole isn't specifically religious, but there sure is a lot of religious talk in it, and while I think that might be harmful to some folks who struggle to look past it. Alcoholics Anonymous and the book really do have a lot of things that are valuable if you can look past it. So it's my intention to kind of introduce that to somebody that may be having an issue looking past some of that stuff. And perhaps my perspective and my view on it can help them utilize just another tool to help them keep sober. Before we get started on either of those, uh, I just wanted to say, you know, the other day I was watching, I don't remember what I was watching, but I ended up kind of happening upon uh, David Harbour. I don't know if anybody out there knows him. He, he's a celebrity. He's an actor. Um, actually, I think I fell fell into one of his videos because I was listening to Theo Vaughn, who's a, another celebrity, but a very vocal member of recovery. He's had folks call on his podcast or radio show, however he describes it. He's just sort of talked some folks off the ledge. He's been able to offer a lot of insight and stuff. And I really like listening to his take on a lot of this. Um, and then, yeah, then I ended up watching a, an interview with... Uh, uh, David Harbour, who I really like as an actor, and after the interview, I, I found that I liked him as a, as a human a little bit more as well, and I found out that he was in recovery, and it kind of got me thinking. I know a lot of folks out there don't really care one way or another who is in recovery. I've said before, I actually kind of think it's it's interesting when I find out that somebody that is on screen or of that world, that big, rich, fancy Hollywood lifestyle is in recovery. You know, it's, it's interesting to find them in the same kind of recovery as anybody else. Maybe their rooms look different, but their insides probably had a lot of the same struggles that we have. You know, you look at Robert Downey Jr. and the the path that he's chosen and the life that he came from and, you know, the, the, the complete 180 and finding out that it was as a result of, you know, 12-step recovery. Um, it just kind of puts in perspective how powerful the program is for me and just returns me back to the idea that there is value, even as an atheist, of really digging into this program and kind of pulling out what everything I possibly can that could be applied to my life and help me keep sober. And yeah, you know, when I find out that an actor or actress that I really enjoy, uh, you know, watching on screen has had a history of recovery and they share their story and their story sounds a lot like mine. It just, you know, it just really puts home the fact that we all come from different walks of life and you don't know where you're going to hear your story. And with that being said, you don't know who needs to hear yours. So... While at times it might feel like you're just sort of shouting out into the ether, even as something as simple as putting out a tweet and tagging it as like recovery posse or hashtag sober or 
hashtag AA and just sharing a little bit of your story, even if it's something small, you don't know how that's going to impact somebody. And the reason why I say this is I, I recently started using Twitter as a way to kind of help me promote my podcast, but also connect with people that might be of similar interest and just is like a, a new avenue of maybe a a kind of social uh, media that I can handle, right? Since Facebook, I end up getting too embroiled in these lengthy conversations that are usually surrounding topics I barely know anything about, but I feel like I can argue about anyways. And I, I see that Twitter is kind of limited in the, uh, the scope of how much you can argue. And what I found is I could really build my own little circle of folk. And immediately I found kind of just this small little community on there of very similar like-minded people not similar in that their story is exactly the same but similar in that they're just struggling man they just want to get better they just want to get healthier maybe their struggle is of a smaller scale you know they relate for work or maybe their struggle struggles on a bigger scale they they just can't stay sober they keep relapsing and what i'm seeing is people reaching out and actually doing what they can to help and really the, the, the reach of AA and the reach of other recovery is is big and small, man. Like seeing somebody like Theo Vaughn who has a, a really big following. He's a comedian. He's got a huge podcast. He took a call from just some person. And when you hear him just listen to this person and really just listen, and it's not for like media coverage. He's not making, you know, he's not turning this into a spectacle. He's just listening, and then he gives real honest, shared advice, advice he's probably heard, advice that, that maybe helped him. And you can tell that he's affected by it. He's not just like passively giving off bullshit advice and then trying to sell some program or something. Just good, solid, honest advice. And then you go, you know, online and... On Twitter, there's people from the UK that are struggling. There's people from Scotland that are struggling. There's people from Australia that are struggling. And we all have this common purpose, you know. And while not everybody is using AA as their program, the recovery talks the same, man. The, the struggle sounds the same. The solutions sound the same. They sound really similar if they're not the same. You know, this all kind of comes around to this fact that for me personally, what helped me kind of understand my situation you know when i when i came into the program this last time it was right off the cusp of a suicide attempt that just failed it didn't fail because i quit the suicide attempt it didn't fail because it changed my mind it failed because i was too drunk to make a good plan and that failed so the intent the 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 purpose the all that was there when i came to the desire to drink had just vanished while there have been a few times where I've kind of romanticized the flavor of something, the interest in having alcohol affect me in some way, either soothe or, you know, provide some kind of uplift or whatever it was I, I felt like I needed from it, that desire is gone. And it's really easy to kind of come into this program feeling like a fraud when you no longer have the desire to, to drink. And the reason why even any of this is important is the next chapter kind of touches on this kind of stuff. You know, who's a real alcoholic? How do you know? What I know for sure is that drinking had gotten me to the point to where my only solution I felt was to kill myself. And just because that's, that desire to drink is no longer with me right now, it's a daily reprieval. Even if, even if it hasn't returned just contingent on the things that have gone on in my life, even if at the lowest points I've had in sobriety haven't made me feel like drinking, it doesn't mean that this is a, a permanent fix. This will not maintain on its own. 
I am lucky that I don't have this desire, this overwhelming desire to drink. However, I have an overwhelming desire to create chaos in my life and to do damage. And while that desire doesn't always play out as in me specifically thinking I want to destroy my life, there is always this bit of me that's struggling to try to do that. After 30-something years, I don't count me being like fucking 8 years old, so let's say 10 and up. So after 30-something years of me just consistently like shitting all over my life having the desire to not drink that's fantastic that that's not there but that's the like minimalist part of my issues realistically the reason why i keep i'm kind of going back and forth and all over the place but this all does tie together so going into the program i i sort of kept that to myself i i didn't really right away tell people that i don't have the desire to drink at the moment i haven't for a long time that was kind of taken from me and that changed when i was listening to a speaker meeting at time I had a, a long commute so I was listening to a lot of speaker meetings in between you know I get two in a day well I heard one from John L and the first half of it I was like this guy sounds really familiar and then I realized it kind of put you know pieces together it's John Larroquette the the guy who was in Night Court I'm sure he's done other stuff but that's where I, I remember him from he had this light switch moment himself where once he had finally reached the point where he had done the damage, enough damage that something inside him snapped and, and changed over, he had a light switch moment where he just did not have that desire. Now, other people have described this as well, but they've all described this as, as for some reason, God chose them out of everybody else to just take that desire permanently from them. And that wasn't what he was describing. He was just describing it as it was there and then it wasn't. And... Hearing someone else say that, hearing anybody else, even though it was John Larroquette, this movie star, he was saying it in a room no different than the one that I was in, at a conference of some kind maybe, but as a speaker in front of other alcoholics, he was saying this in language I understood and applied to me, and I felt a little better about the fact that, okay, I had earned my seat. You know, look at my story. I had earned my seat multiple times, and... Just because that desire wasn't there doesn't mean that I don't have that seat. And I shouldn't feel bad for other people that are struggling with that desire just because I don't have it. All of our recovery is different. Some people will have relapses multiple times, but that doesn't mean that they're any like less of an alcoholic or more of an alcoholic. They're as much of an alcoholic as they need to be if it gets them sober. And if they're struggling to get sober, that doesn't mean I'm rubbing it in their face because I don't have that desire. I have plenty of other struggles that I, that I need to deal with and plenty of things going on in my life. And me not having the desire to drink isn't some sort of a slight to other people or even a slight to the program. And it can be dangerous thinking for me to start feeling like I'm not an alcoholic or I'm not a real alcoholic. I know people get caught up on that whole label thing. And for me, like I've said before, claiming an alcoholic is claiming an allergy it's claiming something that's trying to kill me. If given the opportunity to, I will drink and I will die. Maybe I won't die right away, but it's going to be a gruesome death when it happens, either by my own hand or by some sort of liver failure just like my mother died from. But in the meantime, there's just going to be a whole shit ton of wreckage. I've got 20 years of clear, clear as day proof of that. So I don't need to go out and like experiment. I've done the work. I've done the study. spent 10 years really, really really giving that a good college try to prove that I'm not a, a real alcoholic. So me not having that desire does not make me any less than or any more than or any of these other thans. It just makes me an alcoholic that doesn't have the desire to drink right now. Um, so, you know, if anybody is really following along with that, I implore you to listen to anyone's story. If someone's sharing their story of alcoholism, don't get caught up in where they are right now. 
That's not indicative of where they've come from. Don't get caught up in the fact that they're, you know, a celebrity so they can't relate to you. Or maybe a world leader of some kind. Don't get caught up in the fact that somebody's just crawling out of the gutter right now and they're not going to say anything of value. That just simply isn't true. You don't know what you need to hear until you hear it, period. So, you know, keep those ears open. Share your story when you're when you're available to do so. Don't be, don't be scared to do it. Uh, and listen. Listen when other people share theirs. Uh, all right, let's get into this daily stoic and then into the reading. So this is going to be the July 17th reading. I'm a little all over the place with the reading. Uh, more than likely when this comes out, it's probably going to be like late August. I don't know. I'm, I'm launching this on July 20th and just going to kind of go from there. So in any event, um, for those that might think I'm just picking a reading because I like it, sometimes, yeah, I mean... I'm reading these as the days go by, but there's a couple of these I'm earmarking as I go because I think it'll it'll do well as far as like what kind of share I'll give or how I'll sound when I say it. There's some of these that are just not very good, to be honest. I've said that before. This is, again, this is the Daily Stoic. Ryan Holiday and uh, Stephen Hanselman give their kind of viewpoint on some of the things that people like Marcus Aurelius, uh, Seneca, and Picticus have said over the years. And on occasion, there's some really kind of godish sort of stuff. And other times, I just don't feel like the author is really read the same thing as me. This is kind of one of those times, but like I said before, even if there is something I don't necessarily agree with, it gets me thinking about why. It gets me thinking about just how I can apply it or if I can or, you know, it just, bottom line, it just gets me thinking about something that's a little bit more important than whatever the fuck is on Twitter or Instagram. I know that seems contradictory to what I just said about, you know, using social media as another outlet or tool to to reach your story to other people or hear other stories. But I don't I just don't think that that screen is the first thing I should be waking up to. It just honestly starts my day out a little rough. So anyways, uh, enough babbling. Let's get right into it. Don't abandon others or yourself. As you move forward along the path of reason, people will stand in your way. They will never be able to keep you from doing what's sound, so don't let them knock out your goodwill for them. Keep a steady watch on both fronts, not only for well-based judgments and actions, but also for gentleness with those who would uh, obstruct our path or create other difficulties. For getting angry is only a weakness, just as much as abandoning the task of surrendering under panic. For doing either is an equal desertion, the one by shrinking away and the other by estrangement from family, family and friend. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations 11.9. As we begin to make progress in our lives, we'll encounter the limitations of the people around us. It's like a diet. When everyone is eating unhealthy, there's a kind of natural alignment. But if one person starts eating healthy, suddenly there are opposing agendas. Now there's an argument about where to go for dinner. Just as you must not abandon your new path simply because other people may have a problem with it, you must not abandon those other folks either. Don't simply write them off or leave them in the dust. Don't get mad or fight with them. After all, they're at the same place you were not long ago. Okay, now see, this is one of those where I don't really necessarily agree with what they're saying, which is fine. It gets me something, like I said, it gives me something to think about. So, okay, I don't fully disagree, but what I feel like is being said is, yeah, don't let don't let people sort of sway you from your path. Don't push people away just because your path is different. But what, what the, the authors sort of kind of expand on is the part where it sort of shakes me. But if one person starts eating healthy, suddenly there are opposing agendas. Now there's an argument about where to go for dinner. See, I don't really believe that that's the case. If your friends are really your friends, they're not going to care that you don't drink. Now, it might mean that you don't get to go to bars if you have a trouble, you know, if you have a trigger there. If going to a bar is going to make you drink. In the book, it talks about 
don't go to one without a good reason. You know, don't just go because you're feeling like you had a good day and don't go alone. Don't do something or put yourself in a position that's going to compromise your sobriety. And don't do it for your friends just because they're trying to make you feel guilty about it. Your friends shouldn't be doing that. But at the same time, it's also saying, and I don't agree with this other thing. After all, they're at the same place you were not long ago. See, that's kind of like labeling folks that I don't know. Like, just because you quit drinking doesn't mean that all your friends are in that position where they need to as well and just haven't. I don't think that's true at all. I have friends that are never going to be in AA or need to quit drinking. I have friends that maybe they do. I don't know. Their lives haven't become unmanageable for them. I haven't abandoned all of my friends. Some friends have just been people that aren't a part of my life because our paths were that different. I've, I've had to assess that and everybody should. At one point or another in life, people should assess the people they have around them. That doesn't mean abandon your friends because they're struggling. I have a friend that is struggling heavily with alcoholism and drug abuse. And I say that because he's himself claimed that he's an alcoholic who's struggling with drug abuse. There's only so much you can do at that point. I could abandon him because I, you know, suddenly am sober and therefore that's who I hang out with. But that's not quite how this program works. Now, it doesn't mean that I get I should go party with them. I have in the past, and I put myself in a position where I really tested my ability and willingness to stay sober. That whole thing I said about me not having the desire to drink was tested to its absolute limits because there were times where I was trying to like keep up with some of these folks. What I was really trying to do was hopefully show people that were struggling that you can continue to have fun and you can continue to go out in certain ways even if you're sober now what i was doing really was also just trying to like pick up girls and like live the party lifestyle without partying and that's not that just i just wasn't able to keep up with that and it wasn't really aligning with my path so my path changed but that doesn't mean i abandoned my friend we still have a lot in common i still have a lot of love for him and i feel like i can still show him that you know life goes on even if you quit drinking or quit doing drugs i have plenty of fun without it I do plenty of fun things. I have a good life, even though it's very humble, very simple life. And so having friends like that that might be struggling, you know, I don't just shove the program down their throat. I don't give them a hard time for struggling and for getting drunk and for, you know, being being a uh, little bit of a pillhead or whatever it is that's really going on. I might throw a little shade at them, but the end of the day, you know, it's a friend of mine. I care about them and I hope they get better. And I hope that the reason why they get better is because they see people are capable of doing it. You know, I think that's where I kind of differ from what they're saying. I have plenty of friends that didn't need to quit and that I've kept. I've made new friends that I feel like are completely removed from the program and aren't, you know, trying to keep me drunk or make me drunk. If someone in my life had really started to pressure me and make me feel like that the only way that we could be friends is to continue to drink, that would be different. And that was how things went in my youth. Those were the kind of friends that I had in my youth. These were the people that when I did try to do good, when I tried to like clean my act up and get a job and go back to school or whatever, I was shit on for it because I felt, you know, they felt abandoned. And looking back, you know, they were just projecting their fucking sickness on me. They saw that I was getting better. They felt that that was an indicator that I was abandoning them because they weren't ready to get better. Healthy people don't do that. Healthy people don't see their friends doing better and think, well, fuck that guy. Fuck that girl. What a piece of shit. They don't want to come hang out with me at the bar. You know what the fuck's the matter with them? They're too good for us. They're too good for the bar. Those aren't those aren't friends. That, I think, is part of what they're really saying in here, at least in some way, 
If people are trying to pull you back to a path you're not comfortable with, that you're not trying to live, don't let them. Don't give them the satisfaction. But don't resist it to the point to where you're now becoming toxic. Like, don't put them down. Don't disregard. You know, don't disrespect them. Don't make it seem like it's an issue because specifically that they're alcoholics or they're drunks or whatever it is you feel like they are. It really just comes down to simply your paths aren't aligning. This could happen for any reason with any friend. Really. You could find out that one of your friends just wants to sit at home and play video games all day and you're just not about that. You you discovered that you like kayaking and getting out and being out in the wilderness and camping and shit. Like you could still chat or talk with or be somewhat friendly with those people, somebody that's that different and how they, you know, experience life. But at the end of the day, you're going to grow apart. It's just how it goes. And that's okay. Just don't make them feel like shit for it. And don't try to make yourself feel like shit for it. And don't convince yourself that you're doing something wrong by moving on. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I get out of that reading. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but like I said, sometimes that happens. At the end of the day, I would hope that I understood what it was they were saying there. All right, so on with the reading. So today, like I said, we're going to be reading chapter three, more about alcoholism. In my book, this starts on page 30. Either way, it starts at the beginning of chapter three, more about alcoholism. So if you're following along, we'll start there. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Yeah. Yeah, we do. I do. I did. Boy, was I just all about the life trying to prove that I could drink normally. And like I said previously, that's exactly why I don't really go down the rabbit hole of, well, the desire to drink has been lifted. That must mean I'm not an alcoholic because that's some insane fucking thinking. I'm not saying that I have a mental illness and I'm not like trying to disrespect people that have a mental illness. But yeah, that's not very, that's just not very sane thinking. That's not what people would think if, let's say they were diabetic while the damage that can be done with a diabetic eating a candy bar is a lot different than the damage that can be done by an alcoholic drinking, it would be considered kind of insane if after being put into the hospital for having a diabetic coma from eating too much sugar, you got out and ate a bunch of sugar. People would probably start giving up trying to help you if you just continued to do that. And just saying, oh man, it's been six months since I've had some sugar. I don't really want a candy bar. That must mean I can have as many as I want. I can eat candy bars like normal. It really, really just wouldn't be how that works. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are all like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. And this is where I find the importance in labeling yourself an alcoholic. I know for some folks that becomes a trigger. I also feel like that some folks will find a trigger just to keep themselves from finding a really good strong program of recovery. If you can consistently find things that are wrong with ways of staying sober, then you consistently have a reason why you can continue to drink. And I'm speaking for myself when I say that, but I do see that in other people. <clears throat> I've heard that in speaker meetings. I've heard that in meetings. It's a lot of the reason why some people don't go to counseling. They just feel like they can do it on their own or they don't need to. They haven't found the right counselor. My, my specific story has a lot of that in it. I would find one counselor that didn't work for me and I would say counseling doesn't work. So yeah, for me, labeling myself an alcoholic is smashing the idea that at some point I can drink normally. And I'm not just, I'm just not going to prescribe to the idea that, you know, this is cult light thinking. It's like for me, it's life and death. 
I do not want to consider the option that I might be able to drink after everything I've put myself, my family, my friends, and my neighbors through. And if that means having to follow some sort of a cult-like dogma that I'm an alcoholic and can't drink, and the only result and outcome of that is I don't drink, like what the fuck is the loss there? Realistically, as far as a psychological you know, viewpoint goes, what's the damage there? That I don't drink? I, I don't understand where the, the conflict would be there. Like I'm not giving up much. I don't have to tattoo myself. I'm not like giving my wife up for some weirdo to have sex with like an actual cult would do. There's nobody tearing me down to build me up. Maybe some of the steps feel that way. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if if me telling myself that I'm an alcoholic and that's why I shouldn't drink is keeping me sober and my life improves for it, I can't imagine why that would be an issue. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And that's very true for me. There were, like I said, there were periods of time where shit, beer would go bad in the fridge. Six months would go by and I would have like, you know, a drink every uh, Friday or something and wouldn't have any issues throughout the week. These did not seem to correspond with my depression or anxiety issues. It just, there was no rhyme or reason to it. Looking back, we are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. This is one of my favorite sort of comparisons because it just is just bonkers, honestly, to me. It doesn't it doesn't align with actual like metaphorical thinking we are like men who have lost their legs they never grow new ones i mean like sort of i guess if i were doing dangerous behavior they kind of talk about this in a little bit here in this chapter if i were doing dangerous behavior that lost me those legs and then i went out and i got prosthetics so that i can continue to do that dangerous behavior that lost me those legs and i did it in an unsafe way and continue to do unsafe things like that yeah fucking yeah that'd be definitely the same thing but that's not really it's kind of an odd comparison Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We have tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there has been brief recovery followed always by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish, th accomplish this, but it hasn't done, it, done so yet. Sorry for a little bit of the stuttering there. There's just odd like verbiage in this. I'm really not having the best time kind of keeping up with it. You know, that does bring up kind of a good point. You know, I've talked with other people about this. You know, if there was a pill or an injection or like a patch that could make me drink normally, I feel like honestly with my exposure to this program that, well, I, I mean, I would probably drink, right? But I don't feel like that the core problem is specifically that I drink, at least not all the issues throughout my life. This is where people say things like alcohol is just, alcohol is just a symptom. I always, I always disliked that alcohol is just a symptom. It's like, no, for me, the symptom was all the shit that I did when I was drinking. But then I look at like my time in recovery and some of the weird mistakes that I made and some of the weird choices that I made and some of the damage that was done. And that was all free of alcohol. Yeah, maybe, maybe I would, I would drink, but I would like to think that if you gave it to me right this second, that I wouldn't. That could change. 
I don't know if I would take the the pill or the shot or the the patch. That's a hard thing for me to even really consider because it's you know it's sort of just like a uh, an exercise in fertility. That's not really something that's that's on the table right now. And if it is, it's so far out. There are medications that make it so that you can't drink, and people that have been put on those medications fucking drink anyways. I've heard so many stories of people that were put on an abuse and would fucking just go after it anyways. So yeah, I, I don't think it would do enough to really stymie my issues. Who knows? Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe they are in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. If anyone who is showing inability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. And yeah, I've known people that have just simply quit drinking. Their life seemingly got better. I mean, a lot of it just had to do with them making better choices. They found a counselor that worked for them and medication that helped them deal with some stuff that they were struggling with. And they just, you know, changed their relationship with alcohol. I, I commend them. I'm excited for them. And I know that's where people kind of come from when they say like, well, if you label yourself an alcoholic, you're limiting the ability for you to ever have that kind of an outcome for yourself. And I don't know that that's necessarily true, at least not for me. I don't think that me just simply being like a better person is going to prevent alcohol from reacting differently with me. I have been a better person and still drank and did terrible things. I just... My relationship with alcohol is just different. And, and again, I'll say it again. I, I, if the worst thing that happens is I don't drink and occasionally have to go to a meeting and talk with other alcoholics who are struggling to keep sober, I fucking, I mean, I have done worse things to do less. Like, that seems like a pretty reasonable deal. Anywhere that I go, I can go to an AA meeting name myself an alcoholic and essentially have an entire room full of people that are there to support me. Fucking yeah, sign me up. I mean, that's why I keep coming back to AA as my my preferred way of recovering. That's everywhere and it's and it's welcoming and it's inclusive if you find the right meetings and it can be a lifesaver. So, I keep harping on that. I know that I'm just repeating myself, so I'm just going to move on here to the next thing. This is one of my favorite parts of the book. Here are some of the methods we have tried. Drinking beer only. Limiting the number of drinks. Never drinking alone. Never drinking in the morning. Drinking only at home. Never having it in the house. Never drinking during business hours. Drinking only at parties. Switching from scotch to brandy. Drinking only natural wines. Agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job. Taking a trip. Not taking a trip. Swearing off forever. With, you, with and without a solemn oath. Taking more physical exercise reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. We could increase the list ad infinitum. Yeah, fuck yeah. I'd, every single one of those, essentially. Just before I quit, probably six months before that, I started going to the gym real heavily. I mean, I got into some pretty good shape. I got into even better shape after I actually quit and was really, really dedicated to, to working out. But before I started working out, I was like 250. I had a huge bloated belly. I just looked sickly. And I started working out, and then within a few months, I was like down to 215, 220. Even while drinking, so of course I told myself, well, I can't be a real alcoholic, I get up and go to the gym every day. I, over the years, have changed to, you know, just cider, I changed to certain types of beers, I drank at one point only light-colored alcohols, I drank only mixed drinks, I drank... I drank only on Tuesday. This was just before I quit. This one was funny. So I would get a growler on Tuesdays and then 
just hammer that thing back. At first it was just, you know, just drinking it here and there. And then, and then it got to where like, if I drink this a certain, uh, you know, quick enough, then I'll get a nice hearty buzz going. And then that increased to some vodka. And then soon I was drinking a growler and half a bottle of vodka. You know what I mean? Like it just increased at one point, like I said, in a previous episode, I uh, changed my drinking to scotch very expensive scotches. It's funny, I actually went through some of my old receipts because I was looking through proof that I paid something and saw multiple, multiple trips to this scotch and, and whiskey bar that was just down the street from me of $100, $200, $300. Like the amount of money that I spent on really fine tasting scotch is absolutely absurd. I've had a $78 shot of scotch. Yeah, one ounce, one ounce of scotch, $78 without the tip. Those were the kind of dumb fucking ideas I had to quit drinking. Because again, I thought, well, if I just drink this super expensive stuff, then I'd have to drink less. And again, I know I've mentioned that before, but it's just every time I think about it, I just think of how absurd that is. How just unreasonable that is. How much money I spent and wasted, you know, especially looking at now where I have debts and I'm kind of struggling financially in some ways. Like, man, (laughs) you definitely had an opportunity to do something about that in a positive way and you drank it. You drank it all. So, I mean, does anybody else have this kind of an experience where they did all these kinds of altercations, they put all these rules on it, and it just led to more misery? Like, the rules, the the, the goalposts kept getting moved. The rules changed just a little bit. I'll only drink on Tuesday. Well, you know, Wednesday, I had a really good day at work, so I'll only drink on Tuesday and then today, because it's Wednesday. But but next week, we'll, we'll just go back to only drinking on Tuesdays, and then next week rolls around, and it's like, okay, well, Tuesday was a good day, and that's my normal drink day. And then, you know what? Wednesday was a really good day too. So let's just drink on Wednesday. And then now it's Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And all, you know what I mean? I've heard people talk about the math stuff that they used to do. And I've done the same thing. If I have seven beers and I go to bed at two o'clock in the morning, I can get up at seven. That's five hours of sleep, but I've done this before. And you know what I mean? Like just for me, it was never ending insanity to try to figure out how I can continue to do this shit. If you've had the same or similar experiences, you know, hit me up on some social media if you're into that sort of thing. You can find me on Facebook at an atheist reads the big book of AA. You can find me on Twitter at an atheist in, or you can also just send me an email at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. You know, share your story with me. How, how much were you struggling with changing the rules of your drinking to prove to yourself that you weren't a real alcoholic, quote unquote. So getting right back into the reading, we do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. I do not recommend this. Honestly. I feel like this is the worst piece of advice in this entire book. If I were a sponsor and I had somebody who was struggling with with alcoholic intake and they were like, I'm just not sure. I'm not going to tell them to go drink. I'm going to I'm going to tell them to consider their life and what led them to even talking to me as being a sponsor. But I'm not going to tell them, hey, have you really considered controlled drinking? And I say that because this this section of the book did me personally a lot of damage. It really did. And I just do not agree with it. I don't agree with it being in here. This part... 164 pages in this book and this part stuck in my head like fucking super glue when I was struggling the first few times to get sober and I kept telling myself well maybe I should actually try some controlled drinking and this tells you to just do it for a couple times I spent 10 fucking years trying to do it like an idiot just 
kept over and over and over again doing the controlled drinking and different versions of controlled drinking. If you don't want to drink anymore, then, you know, use the program to quit. But don't don't tell other people to go out and drink just to kind of make sure. Like, fuck that. (laughs) Seriously. I just, I really take issue with this. And I feel like I know what they're trying to do or trying to say. But when you're in here with the fucking jitters and you've got like a million monsters in your head telling you to go drink and someone's like, you know, have you really tried control drinking just to be sure that you're an alcoholic, that you have trouble with it, you know? Just anyways, though there is no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking. But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while there is yet time. We have heard of a few instances where people who showed definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. Here is one. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he would get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. You can tell when this was written because retiring at 55 just is not fucking going to happen unless you're rich. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers and a bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a little while, making several trips to the hospital meantime. Then, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is a completely fabricated story. I say that because I know that Bill Wilson's a salesman, and when you're a salesman, you anecdotally make up kind of true-sounding facts based on, you know, learned experience and other people's stories just to kind of sell the thing it is you're trying to sell. I'm not saying that Bill Wilson's a liar, but I am saying that maybe this story doesn't hold as much credence as, I mean, maybe, maybe he knew a person that fit exactly what it is he was trying to say in this chapter. Like he just happened to know this one person who point by point had a life that perfectly aligned with the message that he was trying to sell. That's that's perfectly possible. We can say that that's possible. I'm going to feel a little bit more like he probably didn't and that he's using this as like a fucking fable, you know, to scare kids away from the, you know, the boogeyman, get those kids to eat their carrots. And yeah, that's us. We're the kids. But so that's fine. I honestly don't have any real issues with that. But the story's weird, to be honest, if you're going to really put into context what the message is that he's trying to say. For me, it's either you're an alcoholic and you struggle to stop drinking, or you can quit, but, you know, depending on how long you do, at some point, you're going to suddenly become an alcoholic. I don't really think that that's, for me, that's just not how it fucking worked. And I'm not saying that there isn't a period of time where I couldn't have quit drinking, for, for a while, I did that. Some of it was in prison, but I could have drank in there. And some of it was, was when I got out and I quit. And while I didn't really give this program a lot of effort, or at least not the right kind, I didn't internalize that effort. I still drank and everything went to shit. What he's kind of trying to describe here is a dry drunk, right? Like what you hear people say they have. 
oh, I've, I was dry drunk for 20 years because I didn't find the program and I didn't better myself. And that's kind of in line with the whole, like, alcohol is just a symptom. There are miserable people who stop drinking and don't do anything to better themselves. I don't think necessarily that means that they're a real alcoholic and they just haven't, you know what I mean? Like they just haven't returned back to drinking. Quite honestly, if you're, if you are an alcoholic of the type that I was, that just wasn't going to be an option. You weren't just going to one day wake up and be like, man, I've been missing a few business meetings. I better quit drinking for 25 years. That's not the kind of fortitude that existed within me. <laughs> You know, and right now, maybe my uh, my desire to drink has changed, but I just don't like that in this story, it's basically saying, hey, some people can just quit, man. But, you know, that doesn't mean that they're not real alcoholics. I, I just, I don't know. It's weird, weird hyperbole bullshit. But, you know, he was trying to sell something, man. He was trying to sell a program. What he probably missed and didn't realize until much later, because he has expressed in other missives that he would like to have revisited this book or at least rewrite it. And the 12 by 12 was an attempt to at least extrapolate on some of this stuff. I just, I think 20 years after this program was around, you know, he probably would have revisited some of this stuff and been like, maybe I shouldn't tell people to go out and drink just to be sure. And maybe I shouldn't tell people that, you know, some people can quit for a long time, but they're still alcoholics. I mean, I guess the main message to get out of this is if you do struggle with alcohol in your life, quitting for a long period of time doesn't mean that suddenly you're cured of that. Maybe, maybe there's people that that's exactly what it means, but I personally haven't met anybody that's like that. And I guess that's kind of what Bill Wilson was saying in this chapter was, yep, yeah, possibly, but I don't know anybody who has because that's not my observable experience. So I'm going to share this story of a thing and why it's bad. Like you don't want to end up being 55 years old, retired, and then kill yourself in two years because you drank yourself to death all of a sudden after having been sober for 20 years. I'm probably really overthinking this. I mean, that is kind of my superpower. Back to the reading. This case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remained sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here is a man who at 55 years found he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we're in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. See, and I kind of, yeah, I kind of support that. Again, maybe, maybe there's people that are like, I just need a real long break and I'll be fine. But for me personally, I just am at the point where it's like, why bother with it? But no benefit comes for me drinking or living the lifestyle that surrounds so much of drinking. No benefit for me, really. I'm not really missing out on much, not from what I've gained from it. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop as he did on their own willpower. Eh, whatever. I've The whole willpower thing, man. We're getting into the part where it's like, you can't just get sober without, without the hand of God. We doubt if many of them can do it because none will really want to stop, and hardly one of them, because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired, will find he can win out. Seriously, they just wrote weird, man. Just, <laughs> it's my biggest struggle with this book. And I have a feeling that it, as we move further away from when this book was originally written, that's what everybody's really going to be continuing to struggle with. Like, they just wrote weird. Like, they had weird verbiage. They rearranged, like, the placement of different describers and shit. I just, I just, um, 
I just have a feeling that I'm going to continue. to. This is not the first time I've read this book. While it may not seem like I'm struggling with a lot of this stuff, I've had to re-record quite a few times because I have just blurted out bizarre versions of what it is that's actually written because my brain can't seem to keep up with this 1930s fucking newsies speak. Sorry, it's kind of a weird thing to just constantly bitch about, but I guess it just brings me back to the fact that I know, I know that this literature needs to be updated. It really does. You know, this isn't the Bible. God did not write this. Even if you are religious and that's the version of the way that you think life works, is that 2,000 years ago a, a, a being wrote something through all these other people. God didn't write this one. And this isn't divine doctrine. It can be rewritten. It can be restructured. Don't be so scared of change that you ostracize anybody new coming to this program because, you know, there's an inability to update any of the language or verbiage that's being used. Back to the reading. Several of our crowd, men of 30 or less, had been drinking only a few years, but they found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking 20 years. Now this I can get behind. There's plenty of newcomers that are very young who only really just drank for a very short period of time and ended up hitting a bottom that they felt was good enough for them to not drink anymore. That girl that I had been seeing, my ex-fiance, she was, she came into the program very young. And when I came back around, after my huge journey into trying to control drink she was still at that meeting hall she was still there claiming chips fucking decade and a half later while maybe right she could probably have risked it and attempted to control drink herself she remained sober she chose that journey for herself from all you know from all accounts her life has just been nothing but better ever since then even including all the bullshit that I put her through because of my drinking. It's just been nothing but better. So if you're young and you're not sure, if you're like, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life, just consider what that is that you're asking. Like, do what exactly? What do you think this is? How come there is an ideal inside some people's minds that some sort of major ending of a future happens because you quit drinking. What kind of social construct has been erected around drinking that it is tied literally to the idea of life, right? Like just this concept that if you quit, your life's over. And just really, why would it be? Why does it have to be? I've quit all kinds of stuff over the course of my life. But somehow in my own head, I was always convinced that if I quit drinking, that I was never going to be able to have fun. I was never going to be able to find comfort or I was never going to be able to, you know, be as funny as I was. Like just all these things that were so tied up into it. But when you're younger, you don't know that that's all that it's giving you, right? At least I didn't. I barely had lived when I realized that alcohol was just that important to me. And a lot of it is socially constructed. There's so much just constant inundation of partying, tailgating, going out with friends. Happy hour is a fucking thing. It's all over just regular house decor. It's it's in magazines, it's in movies, it's in television. And that's fine that it is, but it's created this social ideal that somehow you are now completely abnormal if you remove this one tiny thing. This thing that doesn't not is not a requirement for any kind of living. But if you remove it entirely, then somehow you're missing out. You're going to miss out entirely. Life's going to pass you by if you don't have a Budweiser, if you don't have that chorus, if you don't drink that whiskey. That's That to me is just now that I've been sober for a little while and I realize, yeah, I could fucking live without this. It's so weird to think of how that's the part of the relationship with alcohol that's changed is I realize that I'm not missing out on anything. Just really, I'm not. So if you're young and you're struggling with this idea of doing this forever, 
That's where the idea of just do it for today comes along. Just do it for today. If the idea of you quitting drinking is just unfathomable, which most of us should practice this anyways, just do it for today. Find the relief in it for today. If you've woken up with a hangover for fucking six months, don't wake up with one tomorrow. See how that goes. And then if it goes well, maybe try it again. You just keep doing that, you know, see how that goes. Anyways, don't get, don't get caught up in 25 years from now. Nothing stays how you think it's going to be. Nothing actually, no five-year plan, no one-year plan, no 10-year plan works out exactly as you planned it. And if it does, that's probably something you should talk to a counselor about. To be gravely affected, one does not necessarily have to drink a long time, nor take the quantities some of us have. This is particularly true of women. Potential female alcoholics have to turn into the real thing and are gone beyond recall in a few years. Certain drinkers, who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics, are astonished at their inability to stop. We, who are familiar with the symptoms, see large numbers of potential alcoholics among young people everywhere, but try and get them to see it. As we look back, uh, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our own willpower. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. Now see, now this is something I can get behind. If you're not really sure if you're an alcoholic or not, quit for a while. Pretty simple. I mean, if you're not an alcoholic, what's one year without drinking? What's a month without drinking, right? Like, unless there's some scorecard somewhere that you're keeping track of. Like, oh man, fucking Steve's been drinking for a month. If I quit for a month, then I'll be behind. I gotta keep up with that, dude. Yeah, just quit for a while if you're young and you're listening to this. By this point, I'm pretty impressed if you are and you're not sure you're an alcoholic. Uh, But, you know, let's just say you are or you know someone that might be. Give them that advice. I mean, if they're struggling and they're like, I I don't know if I should quit or not, just say, hey, fucking quit for a year. See what happens. If he is a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a few weeks. I can already tell I've babbled a little bit more than I usually do in these, and that I'm going to end up having to split this in half. Darn it! I was really trying to fit some chapters in each episode, but I just realized this is going to end up being like two and a half hours long if I try to do that. So we'll get a little further along, and then I'm probably going to find a good place to stop, and uh, we'll split this up into a two-parter. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. So, okay, of course this is in my original book, just all kinds of highlighted. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. I mean, you know, no. (laughs) If you're going to quit on a non-spiritual basis, it's not based on how much you're a fucking alcoholic or not. If you're going to quit on a non-spiritual basis, it's because you're an alcoholic and you don't believe in God and that's okay. Seriously, it really is. And that's what this whole book is about. This fucking phrase right here, essentially. This paragraph, this this sentence inside this paragraph. We agnostics is going to be kind of rough, but this is a little taste of it. This is a little taste of the parts of this book and this program that I really still kind of struggle with. And I know other people struggle with. And that's the whole reason why we're even here right now listening to me babble on about this shit is... 
Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends on the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose. I, many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This other utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. This is kind of going along the idea that if you're trying to do this with a non-spiritual sort of basis, then you're trying to do it with willpower, and willpower will fail. And that's just, I cannot get behind that. I do not believe that. I've seen way too many people find real, genuine sobriety and recovery using programs like this one, uh, using, you know, other programs, and not a single bit of it had anything to do with God. So, yeah, we're, we're going to continue to talk about that, but I just cannot reiterate it enough. It's not a requirement, and it just honestly isn't a requirement to even understand some of this book. Like there is just, again, there's just enough in this book that can really be a beneficial start to people in sobriety. Hopefully we're getting that point across and it's not just me ragging on the book and just making a big show of how much I disagree with everything in it. Because there's stuff in here that I do disagree with and I will gladly disagree with because I think that's important too. I'm going to disagree with parts that other people aren't. More importantly, I'm going to agree with parts that maybe other people haven't considered and whatever I agree with are the parts that keep me sober. If for some reason I disagreed with the entire book, I am limiting myself to years of effort and work that has worked for other people. And that's not what I want to do. So how then shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him uh, after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is his thinking? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automo uh, automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him that we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. So, yeah, I mean, he, he failed to enlarge his spiritual, uh, his spiritual life, which to me is he stopped doing what worked. I, I mean, what works is growth. So if you're not growing, even incrementally, even in the tiniest way, then yeah, that, that growth, when it stops, just brings you right back to where you were. That's what I think is important is just human nature. If you're not moving forward, you're sinking in quicksand. If you're not growing as a person, if you're not pushing yourself to do better, if you're not, if you're not staying healthy, body, mind, and soul, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take less time every time to sink back into old habits that drag you down. And yeah, this is 
not really, I'm not really describing alcohol, you know, and drinking as an old habit, but that's the spiritual life that needs to be enlarged. If you're not spiritual, if I can do better for yourself, do one, one tiny thing a day, that's just a little better than you did yesterday. Just one tiny thing. And as long as you're always moving forward and always doing progressive things to make your life a little bit better, even if terrible, awful, horrible shit happens, you will be prepared for it. You'll be able to weather that storm. And it isn't because of some spiritual gatekeeping that allows you to do that. Strength of character comes from doing strong things. And strong things are as simple as seeing a piece of litter on the ground and picking it up with the thought that you don't want to have to have that be something someone else has to do. Being out to eat and deciding to clean up after yourself so that the waitress doesn't have to, or waiter, doesn't, busboy, whoever, doesn't have to do it for you. You know, maybe you split the chores up at home and you decide to do the chores for whoever it is that that's split up for just to be nice, just because you can. Even if they don't say anything about it or you don't get praise or kudos for it, you just do it every day. Every single day you can do something just a little bit nicer than you did yesterday. You can tell somebody you like the fucking shoes they're wearing. You can tell somebody that you think they're funny. I don't know. It doesn't have to be anything specific. But, I mean, if you feel like you've crossed the finish line and you don't have to do nice shit anymore, or you don't have to try to be a better person anymore, you've reached the end, you are the person everybody else is hoping to be, then good for you. What the fuck are you doing here? Make your own podcast. Share us and regale us with what's making you the pinnacle of humanity. But I absolutely guarantee you, if you're listening to this right now, however altruistic, however kind and thoughtful and amazing you are, and I hope you are, really do, you can always do a little better. Just a little better. Even if that little better is remaining consistent. So I, that's, that's the spiritual life that I get from this. That word isn't a bad word, spiritual life. It's not, you know, it's not just immediately connotating that you are of God or something, or that you meditate yourself into another dimension or whatever. It just means that you take care of your shit and you try to do a little better at it every single day. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive to the country and see one of my uh, prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they had a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. I had eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. This is all capitalized. Suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. As an aside, that sounds disgusting. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The, the experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. So... If you kind of take in the whole thing in context, you can see based on sort of where all of this book and everything in it is going, you can see that what they're really saying or what the person that they said they're talking, you know, whoever Bill Wilson is saying that he was talking to, if this story is actually as real as it was, this one seems like it's real. What you can see is the person saying they, they were struggling well before their first drink. There were things going on in their life that were happening that were making them unhappy in a way that led to them being taken off guard by the first drink. 
And I'm not saying that that's how it's always going to be for people that end up relapsing. But if he's having issues working for the place that he used to own, and he has that resentment, and he has all this stuff built up around that, and he, you know, he just kind of glosses over that and this. But I guarantee that's the kind of thing that's going to stick in your head when you decide, ah, fuck it, I'm having some whiskey in my milk. I don't know what else could be going through your head to think that having multiple whiskeys and milk is a good idea in general. But getting to the place to where you feel like that's your option right now because you're not happy that somebody else owns your business. It's the somebody else owns your business that you haven't resolved. This person didn't resolve that. It wasn't on accident. He didn't just suddenly have this thought. And you hear this in the rooms a lot with people that have relapsed. Once you start walking it back and you can hear people walk it back, it all ultimately results in poor housekeeping. They stopped going to the meetings. They stopped doing the program. They stopped doing the steps in their life. They stopped doing the next right thing. They stopped doing simple things of kindness. They just stopped. They started becoming more selfish and self-seeking and self-centered. And then suddenly alcohol just flew down their throat. That's kind of how it went with me. I was doing all of the right things, quote unquote, but I became more deceitful. I started doing sneaky shit. I wasn't being honest about my feelings with my, my fiance at the time. I didn't tell her everything that was going through my head. Not saying that you have to be 100% completely clear, but if you're not feeling sexually attracted to your partner, you should tell them. Find a way to tell them. Find a way to become sexually attracted to them. Don't go blow $1,200 on strippers and in relapse. Like, is the other outcome that bad? That the best choice? You know what I mean? Like, I stopped doing the work and I drank. Pretty simple. And that's just what is described here. The guy stopped doing the work and he drank. And he still chalked it up to like, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I started drinking. Everything was going fine. I was about to sell a car to some person at a diner. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only mixed it with, with milk. And this seems to be about halfway through the chapter, so I think this is a good place to stop. You know, I really hope folks are still following along. Uh, if for nothing else, my bizarre and interesting and unique take on some of this, or for, I don't know, whatever it is that folks are getting out of this, you know, it, the only way I know if I'm doing it right is if I get feedback. So please share that feedback with me. Join the conversation. Let's make kind of a small community. You know, I would love to have people actually communicating around this stuff. Even if it's just to tell me that I have no idea what I'm talking about, just try to come from a place of education. If you feel like I have something I need to be taught, then teach me. Don't yell at me and put me down or, or do that to anybody else, honestly, because the first thing I'm going to think, if you're just being disrespectful and degrading to somebody else because they're not following the program that you are, there's something wrong with your program. I don't want to follow it anyways. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? So, you know, try to come from a place of education try to come from a place where you're not taking it personally that I have a different view on this program. Um, you know, if you feel like I'm saying something that's going to be harmful to others, let's have a discussion about that. I'm very open to the idea that I'm doing something wrong and will willingly learn from it if I'm proven that that's the case. But I have a feeling that there are going to be folks that, you know, they decide to listen to this because they want to see what's wrong with it. They want to, in their mind, prove that I have to be selling a, a something, that I have to be doing something unjust or harmful if I'm not doing it exactly the way that they were told needs to be done, or if I'm not saying it the way that they feel it has to be said. You know, there are people that feel like if you try to do this without God, then you're not doing it. 
You're not doing it the right way. And I will continue to say again and again that that's just not the case. However you choose to better your life via sobriety or recovery, if you're a struggling alcoholic or drug addict, it's the right way to do it if it keeps you sober and it keeps you from doing harm to other people, including yourself, period, with or without God. So uh, with that, uh, you know, I really hope that you guys come back. And if you'd like to have that conversation with me, you can find me on Facebook at An Atheist Reads the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at An Atheist NAA. And you can send me an email at oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. Uh, hopefully over time, I'll have some more avenues of reaching out and participating. I'll probably do a Patreon of some kind that has, you know, just the option of supporting this if that's a thing that ends up happening. However that ends up going, the ultimate goal is I want people to feel like they learned something from this. And if even the thing they learn is what not to do for some reason, and it keeps them sober, fine. Like, I'm, I'm okay with any of that. Uh, I'm just here to just personally, myself, find another avenue that keeps me sober. And if reading through this book multiple times and having guests on and going about making this podcast something that feels special to me, if that keeps me sober, then I'm going to keep doing it. So I appreciate you listening, and uh, hopefully I'll have you back for the next one.